Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Mavis Gallant, who died in 2014 at the age of 91, was a Canadian short story writer who spent most of her life in France. During her lifetime, she had 118 stories published in The New Yorker, which made her one of the magazine's most published writers. Along the way, she did write two novels, but it was because of her shorter fiction that she was very much a writer's writer. A very private person, she only rarely gave interviews, but she did go on a book tour for her short story collection Across the Bridge, and it's then, on October 6, 1993, that Richard A. Lupoff and I had a chance to speak with her. It was a time of great change in Europe, but as you'll hear, Mavis Gallant was not very optimistic. Wikipedia notes that her subject was frequently fascism, in particular about what she called, quote, the small possibilities in people, which leaned them toward fascism. In a roundabout way, she discusses that in this interview. Ms. Gallant, how do you see the short story today? Is it still a lively form, do you think? Well, yes, I do, because a great many people are doing it, and they get published, and that's what it means. Do you think it's read more these days? In English, in English. We're in English. About English, yes. I don't know if it's read more or less. Collections aren't read more, no. Do you still write for The New Yorker even after the change? Yes. And you haven't, there's no difference from your end of it? Well, I live 3,000 miles away. Uh, you live in Paris, but you were born in Montreal. Mm -hmm. It said in the biographical material you went to 17 French and English speaking boarding schools and during that period you developed a passion for literature. But not boarding schools. I had some boarding schools but they were just public schools like everyone else. But you began to read a lot at that point. I read a great. I was given books when I was a small child and I read books. All, all the classics in English. I read in French but I preferred English. So I wrote in English. The question still arises, why 17 schools? Were you that much of a thug? No, I wasn't that much of a thug. My uh, my father died when I was very small. My ah. mother married again, and I was rather shunted around. And you moved to Paris uh, after the war in 1950. And That's you, right. And you've been there ever since. Well, I've been in Europe ever since, yes. I wasn't in Paris the whole time. At first, I, I moved around, which was much easier to do in those days. I had a little typewriter and a suitcase, you know, very small, and uh, it was it was it was easy. I had no money. The less money you had, the easier it was to move around because you just got in a third class carriage and uh, where you went. When you were in Montreal, you were a journalist. Did you continue the journalism in Europe? No, I did. Uh, the first winter, I did a few things because I had no money. Then I did, didn't do anything, any form of journalism for 18 years because I wanted to, to really just do fiction. Then, then my diary of the 1968 uh, student riots was published by The New Yorker, and then I began to do, I saw that it was all right, I could do it. 
and I did some reviewing and I did different things, yes. How was Paris in 1968? Was it uh, as extraordinary as they say? It was utterly extraordinary. I thought it was the commune. And it was very stupid of me because not much was happening outside Paris. But I, the reason why I started to keep a journal so intensely, I, I thought the newspapers weren't reporting it properly from the first day. And I, th I thought it was the commune. I thought it was a great, great, great change. I, I couldn't believe it. And I must tell you, I was very happy about it. Well, we hear about it from the time that the students actually began their revolt in 68. Mm -hmm. How far back did the, the seeds of it go? I mean, did it go back to the beatnik movement of the 50s, do you No, think? everyone was absolutely astonished. But the student movement itself began in America and in Italy in 68. Yeah. It didn't start in France. But there, as things always do, they become legendary. There's a philosophical uh, basis. There's uh, they, they don't calm down all that easily either. And there was, you know, the, to, to live in a city where everything, absolutely everything, country where everything comes to a standstill is extraordinary. Where you can't post a letter, you can't go to a movie, you can't, there, nothing, nothing, nothing is working. And that that's remarkable. What was the government doing that during that period? Wringing its hands, and the and de Gaulle was uh, had left uh, went to Germany to see if he could get back up from the army, and uh, was told they wouldn't fire on people, they wouldn't do it. He it was it was it was as touch and go as that. He was ready to. In the United States, the student movement, in some respects, gave rise to in many people's minds. I'm not sure how true it is to the Reagan years, and in France to uh, Giscard d'Estaing and, and afterward, do you see a comparison between the Oh, two? there was an enormous change afterwards. The relationship, there really was. This isn't just romantic, uh, romantic nonsense. They voted in right after the riots, the most conservative government they had until now. Now it's even more conservative. But the relationship between parents and children changed almost overnight young people were not like young people here. They were very held by their families, and suddenly they were out. They weren't coming home. They were fighting. They were. It was extraordinary. It's never been the same since. And the school system changed. The university system changed. That, that really did change. So everything was more or less 19th century in a sense, and then it just shifted into I the 20th? I always looked on French young people as little senile old men. And uh, I looked down, they were 17, they were 18, they were doing their homework. The mother was standing there with the book. They had little, I always saw them with little thin, thin, thin arms, you know, carrying these books. We, oui, madame, you know, very, and suddenly they, they, they became something else. But here in America, we've always had the image of France in general and Paris in particular as being ultimately cosmopolitan and sophisticated. Well, I don't see the contradiction. What do you mean? This this sort of repression, uh, the notion of, of the, the little stick-like... Well, that's uh, middle class, you know, was, that was the way the people were brought up. It, does, it doesn't stop them from being sophisticated in their tastes, in art or books or whatever. You deal with, uh, with these sorts of people in your books uh, to a very great degree and in your short stories. Some, well, frequently, yeah. certainly in the stories in Across mm. the Bridge, mm. you are dealing with mm. those, those sorts of people. And you deal with the era prior to that. 
you don't seem to focus, at least in Across the Bridge, on the later era. Yes, there's a story that's uh, what happens to a publisher when the Berlin Wall comes down. Right, that one story. There's yeah. a story about uh, what happens to re to refugees from Eastern Europe when they were allowed a passport suddenly and can go back to Poland and they can't. They're too old. They can't make the. That's a contemporary story. But, well, I was thinking more in terms of of the story. Um, across the bridge itself. Across the bridge itself. Madame Diaz de Cortes is, that's is current. That's It couldn't be anything very else. Very contemporary. No, no. no, what you're thinking of is that particular story across yeah. the bridge. The sense I get is that you have a great feel for that Well, I era. remember it. I, that's when I arrived. And things things were like that. Uh, I, I, I knew uh, a young woman when I, in 1950 when I got there who became engaged to a man and she didn't know if she was going to marry him or his cousin. Her father said, I've had an offer for you. You know, just like a horse. And uh, I'm not forcing you to take it, but I advise you to take it because I'm hard up. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. You've got two other sisters. And he said the family name and she didn't know if it was this man or his cousin. And she just accepted because she couldn't see anything else to do. And that was not only within my lifetime. It was, you know, I was there. Mademoiselle Diaz de Corta yes. deals with a young woman who comes into a home. She's obviously a modern woman, yet the woman she's staying with seems very much like the mothers of these pre-68 yes, French is, but people. The, but the question is that the, that the young woman who comes to Paris looking for a job is obviously Portuguese, obviously. And the woman who, who takes her in is is motherly. She does. She does. She would look after, her, but she can't stop making racist cracks. It's in her. It's in her. She can't stop doing it. It's 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 second nature. That's what the story is really about. I, I must say that I was um, very struck by the the way small points become magnified and rendered very important, at least symbolically important, in your works. And I'm thinking in particular of the different regional accents of speech which are mentioned in France, and then in the Montreal stories with which the book opens uh, the, uh, and, and closes, the emphasis on, on such fine points as an occasional slip of pronouncing as if it were the letter D, where it should be TH. Yes. How important is this? I think it's, I, I must think it's important or I wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> and I do listen, I have an ear. And, it, it identifies uh, people. I, I can, yes. I'm not as good with American voices now because I don't live here, but I used to be able to imitate any of you. <laughs> well, it seems in, in, the, in the book, uh, in the story, um, Mademoiselle Dia, Diaz de Corta, but it also runs throughout your book, people seem very deaf to what other people are doing and thinking. And this is, this, uh, in in that story, but also in the, in the the Fenton Child, it, it's as if nobody is really listening to one another. Do you think so? Yeah, I that's don't know. I, I, I'm not aware of that. In the Fenton Child, there's a mystery. There is a mystery, that, yes. The, and and the the solution is is simple. <laughs> well, it's pretty obvious from uh, from the early pages of it. But it, it seems there that and and to some degree, I think in the Montreal stories, everybody is enclosed in their own little world, and peering out beyond that world seems difficult for them. Are you objecting to this? Oh, no, I'm just, it's no, I'm a just statement. It's, it's a statement. Well, I can't help you because I can't analyze the work. 
I can't an- I could analyze it for somebody else's, but I, I can't an- I can't write and analyze it at the same time. It's it's impossible for me. I really don't know. To me, it's a book. When I I reread it because I had to time stories that I'm going to be reading, you know, uh, while I'm over here, and uh, I thought it seemed to me a book about language. More than anything else. More than anything, it was odd. Yes. In fact, there is a story. Uh, please remind me of the title about a professor who spends years in a kingdom little come. Th- that's my favorite. Kingdom come. That's, that's a favorite. wonderful little it's story. It's my favorite. Uh, it, it borders on fantasy. In yes, a way. it's it's a parable. Would you talk about? Well, again, you can't analyze your own work, but would you, if possible, talk about the creative process, the ideation that went into that remarkable story? All short stories begin with an image. You know, you see someone, and and I saw this man standing on a stage in Helsinki and with only nine people in the audience and bringing them something absolutely remarkable, an Alephilian language that no one had ever heard or knew anything about and a society nobody knew anything about. And they all get up and file out. That was the first image I had. Because because, nobody cared. Because nobody in Europe cared. I wrote that story just um, obviously before the Yugoslav War, because I say in it there are no wars in Europe. And it was also before they had the, the, the court cases in America where children denied or chose or refused their parents, because I mentioned it. But I imagined that. I imagined it as something so fantastic that children would recognize their parents instead of parents recognizing the children, that it never occurred to me such a thing come to pass. I wrote it, I think, about 89, something like that in mind. Reminded me somewhat of Borges. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, because there's a couple of stories in Ficciones that have a similar sensibility. But it's possible. Do you read much in the way of short stories? Other people's? Well, I read in in the way most writers read, just whatever's around, you know. I I read an awful lot of um, short stories in adolescent. I read Chekhov uh, in English in the... Constance Garnet translation over and over and over. I read Maupassant. I I could read French, you know, so that was easy. And uh, but I don't I don't know that I prefer them to novels. No, I just I think I think I began to write short stories to tell you the truth. Uh, uh, first of all, I was fascinated by the New Yorker when I was young, and because at that time the, the best of fiction was there, so I thought it had to be that or nothing. And I sent them a story out of the blue. I was a newspaper reporter. And that was how we got going. But after that, when I went to Europe, now I decided to try and live on my work, which was a quixotic thing to do. I wrote short stories because I had no money. I, I couldn't sit down for 18 months and think about a novel. And uh, I had to have money so I could live for the next two, three months, you see. That was, it was no more uh, deep or penetrating than that. That was all. I was, I was hard up. What do you see as the difference between Canadian French-Canadian and French culture? I would think they were utterly different except for a, a, a faraway route. You know, I, I think syntax is thought, and you don't you don't think the same way. Um, I think that they're Americans who speak a very old French, although I, it's irritating. I'm irritating them by saying this, and I shouldn't because it's not my intention. Um, but who, who are American. When, when you see them in Europe, you see how American they are. 
they perceive themselves to be French, but you uh, would perceive to them. Point. They, they, sometimes they perceive themselves American too, and they get pretty irritated. And they have the same problems in France that I have in England as as people from the next colony. I'm very irritated by the English. I don't put up with anything. I I have a chip on my shoulder. I'm as rude as can be, and they are they are uh, like that um, with the French very often. They say, "What do you mean you can't understand me?" Or, or, or in England, someone says, "Where are you from?" I say, "What do you mean? Where am I from?" Yeah, it's stupid. But. <laughs> the stories, the, the Canadian stories in your book, are for the most part, uh, perhaps entirely written from the viewpoint of French Canadians. I don't know why that happened. I think it's just something I'm remembering. That period of the '40s is when I was a reporter. And at that time, uh, they didn't want women on newspapers, and I had a, a career only because I could speak French, and it was a French city, and I could go to a, a French press conference and write the thing in English. You know, I had that advantage. And I did know those. Really, you can trust me on that. I did know them. I went to a French, I was in a French convent at the age of four. Um, those are the children I played with. I knew I was the only English Protestant of my generation to whom this very strange thing uh, occurred. And I, I, um, I feel absolutely reliable when I'm writing them. I know I'm not going to make a mistake. And I like them. In these stories, we, we see the English Protestants, Canadians, through the eyes of French Catholic Canadians. But that's what's interesting, isn't it? And they, well, they come across as very cold and not very bright. Or, yeah. or do, do I misread you? Perhaps, perhaps. But from her point of view, they would be. And of course, they were a very philistine community. Why do you think I wanted to get out? I, I put it to you rhetorically. <laughs> <laughs> you, you feel more at home than in Europe. I had Europe on the brain, but it came from my reading. It came from my reading. Everything that I read and all the music I listened to, everything seemed to come from Europe. I had no idea. I knew about, of course, I knew about the war. I wasn't stupid. I was, in, but I, I didn't realize how how, how dreadful, how much they hated each other. The, I didn't the English realize and the that. French. No Europeans among themselves. Oh, all the Europeans. I, I tended to to idealize. Your perspective uh, as a North American. Living, living in Europe, there is a great deal of portrayal in your new book of East Bloc refugees and emigres living in Western Europe, some of them during the Cold War era, some of the other stories in the post-Cold War era. Since we're sitting here in California today, we've got a whole continent and a whole ocean between us and that world. I wonder what it must have been like for you to live through the whole Cold War era in the middle of it? Well, I knew the, the refugee communities in Paris. I knew the Poles in particular, who were a large community of writers, poets. Uh, th those are the people I knew. And at the end of the, of the thing, when they could, many, many don't even go back to see what's happening. It's the most extraordinary rejection and fear, almost, of, of, of what's, what, what has happened. Because what they hoped would happen has happened, and, and uh, it isn't working. I mean, we're not, we're not going to be hypocritical about this, are we? It, it, it isn't working. There were 75 theaters in Poland, now they're under 10. And in very, very fast, it just collapsed, it imploded. And this is very upsetting because these these people were what we call the, the intelligentsia, 
and, uh, and they're too old to go back to, but, but it also it isn't what they wanted. I, I think you raised the same point that this occurred in 19, or, or at least let, let me just be autobiographical. I'm old enough to remember 1945 pretty clearly. Yeah. And the glittering hopes that we all held for the post-war world, which very quickly crumbled and, and brought us into almost half a century of Cold War. And now that's over and our, our glittering hopes are once again I was very much on the left, and I believed that it would be a, a, a renewal, something absolutely extraordinary that was going to happen. I had great faith in Czechoslovakia. Nobody dreamed what, what, what really was happening or would happen. And it was hard to believe me even when it was put under your nose. And, and does this leave Europe in a state of disillusioned despair, or is no. there some hope? No, I don't think the decision despairing, but I think I think it's a it's a dislocated world and a dislocated society, and and we're going toward. Uh, I'm telling you things you know by heart. We're going toward a century of exclusion and racism such as we've never, never, never seen, perhaps since the Crusades. A friend of mine lived for a while in Prague, following. He's an English. Yeah. He speaks English. He's from America, and he said at first there was a sense that anything was possible, but slowly that sense tended to implode on itself until it was this odd amalgam of the prejudices of the old era with the greed of the new. There's one thing that I can't figure out about it. Nobody told me when I was growing up that if you had to have a democracy, you also had to have the mafia, you had to have drugs, you had to have, uh, you had to have criminals in the streets, you had to have this and that. And why do we deliver this as a package deal? Just as socialism was delivered to them as a package deal with, with, with work caps. I, I wonder, are we delivering a package? Do we have the right to deliver a package? Who are we it to can't tell be another helped. country? It can't be helped. I haven't been in, in uh, Russia since the Brezhnev years, and uh, people were bored, and, and we know what was going on, the, the intellectuals and so forth and so on. At the same time, I remember that the friend I was with, who was French, and we said to each other, it's going to be terrible because we're going to bring them La drogue, la maladie, la, you know, we're going to bring them a lot of things that, that they're not equipped to handle and they're not barred. And, and, and yet the end of, the, of that system was clearly inevitable, or was it? Oh, I, I, I would not for the world have wished to, for the writers of that country to go on and on into that system. But the point is they've stopped writing now. Nobody's writing and nobody's reading. A Russian bookstore that was in Paris since the time of the Tsars has closed because they're not getting any books out. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you, the, the general future of the written word. Now, it's declining there, and in America, it seems that fewer people are reading. I don't believe that. You don't believe that? No, I don't believe that at all. I think, I think that many people are reading. And uh, would they go, listen, publishers aren't masochists. They wouldn't go on and on. Would they publish me if people weren't reading? Someone who writes short stories that we have to sit here arguing about because they're not clear. Why would I, every word I, listen, I, every word I write is published. Every word. Otherwise, I wouldn't be alive. I live on, on it. The minute uh, that someone like me isn't published, okay, we're not reading. Because I have a tiny audience. 
it strikes me we are receiving the propaganda, if you will, that people aren't reading. That's because publishers adore complaining. <laughs> <laughs> you think that's it? Well, they adore it. It's awful. It's never been worse. Wait till next year. Uh, you know, it'll be even worse. What about the preponderance of the of American TV and junk culture in Europe? And I'm th I'm thinking of Euro Disney, but I'm also thinking of Terminator 2 and and Jurassic Park. Oh, so what? Come on. <laughs> it's not. Uh, I think that what the fight they're putting up now with the GAT about, about culture is right to some extent because the French don't want the television to become like the German and the Italian. And uh, I don't blame them. However, what they produce isn't all that thrilling. You know, it's it's pretty, pretty... You, you know, she goes to the window, she looks out, she stands there for a long time looking out, uh, he's uh, back there and he's he's uh, going to uh, pour a glass of water over her head, but he never quite does it. And that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds almost like a New Yorker story. <laughs> <laughs> New Yorker had, had been uh, at one time the great bastion of the so-called slice-of-life school of writing. Is that school still alive? You'd better judge it. They're American stories. You judge America. It's your business. We interviewed a, a very successful, incredibly successful American writer by the name of Anne Rice, who writes, okay, she writes novels. Vampire very, novels. Right? Vampire novels. Very gothic vampire novels. Just signed novels. a $17 million contract mm -hmm. with her publisher. Okay. She started complaining to us, and I'd like to hear your response to this, that the era of fa the fantastic novel was somehow coming into its own, and the era of what she called pedestrian realism was declining, that this had been an aberration in literature. Well, what do you mean by pedestrian realism? You mean like uh, Jane Austen? I mean, what do you mean? I think she was referring to the mundane lives of everyday people living out their uh, fears, hopes, and prejudices. That's the sense that I get. But it can't be over because they're still publishing it. That is, you know, if, you, if you've ever uh, looked at students' work, and they, and they begin, uh, I, I only did it one year at a university, and uh, I was amazed at the, it's, it's obviously their own families and so forth, the violence. I, I wouldn't call it mundane pedestrian. And I often said, well, where did you hear people talking that way to their children? Where did you hear that language? I don't agree about mundane. I don't think there's such a thing as a mundane life. I think you take anybody off the street. Life is interesting. It depends how you look at it, how you approach it, the kind of questions you ask the person, what you what you bring out of them. There's there's a, even someone who at eighteen does does nothing more. It's not mundane. There's n there's no such thing. You don't have to be bitten by a vampire to uh, to have experience of life. It's thrust upon you. <laughs> According to some of the literature your publisher sent us, you've had very long ongoing relationships with editors, Joe Fox at Random House. 30 years. Danny Manneker at The New Yorker. Well, it, it was it was really uh, really Maxwell I had for 25 wow. years, and he replaced him. And uh, it, it just, I figured out the other day, it added up to 20 years. Yes, you know, uh, am I a gypsy to change? <laughs> 
Well, do you think this is common? Uh, I don't know. I've I, I've certainly changed a lot in England, where where I'm a bit more difficult to deal with, and I change constantly with Americans. Why why change? When these editors, these different editors, mm. not the same ones, come to you, do they want to change your prose at all? Never. They never want to do anything. No, well, when I was young and I had William Maxwell, uh, the New Yorker then was was very high-handed, and uh, they they would do various things, but that stopped. And uh, he was a remarkable editor. You know who I'm talking about. Uh, for a whole year, I didn't know he was the William Maxwell. I didn't know he was the writer. He not only was not in competition with with his his writers, he was he was extremely. Uh, he just never mentioned. I, it was a year before I realized that the author of the folded leaf was the man I was working with, a novel I worshipped, you know, and that was that man. I don't know if Ross was before your time. Ross took my first story. He did. Did you ever meet him? No, I I, I didn't meet Mr. Ross, but he was he he accepted my first story. How about Sean? Did you ever meet him? Of course, yes. What was he like? We wrote. He called me Miss Gallant. And I went and said, well, if you're going to do that bit, it's actually technically Mrs., but it didn't matter, it was Miss. And he signed William Shaw. The day he left, the day he left, I had a letter. He wrote me a letter within the week, Dear Mavis, Love, Bill. And and it had been Mr. Shaw and, and uh, Miss Tiddly Push, whatever I'm called, uh, for the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, halfway through the 80s. We fought like wildcats because he had, he uh, edited the, um, my 1968 journals personally, and we did fight by long distance. It's the only man I ever shouted. I went through a divorce without raising my voice. I, I shouted at him on the phone. He said, well, we're only trying to help. And I, I shouted, stop trying to help me. What, what about uh, <laughs> Tina Brown? Did you have any contact with her? Oh, yes. We've talked on the phone. What what do you think of her changes at The New Yorker? I can't judge it, because the one thing that I would never do in any circumstances is say something was necessarily better before. As a fiction writer, I do mind having the fiction squeezed into as if, uh, I think, the, you know, is about as much attention paid to fiction as a guppy would pay. But it hasn't changed my relationship with the magazine, no. In, in, as a professional sense, and uh, I, I, I've never met her. I shall be meeting her now. Do you see yourself writing for different other publications? I to don't know. It's degree? never come up. It might. I, I might end up ever writing for you. Do you, do you broadcast your stories? <laughs> I, we sometimes do, yes. Yeah, well, there you are. It's my future. In the same context, have you ever considered writing in other languages than English? No, I'm absolutely, I, that would be a tour de force. I, I won't do it. I won't go near it. Uh, the only writer who brought that off successfully was Beckett. I mean successfully. And even there, there's something, in my view, wrong with the French. It's, it's cold classic French. And when you read what he wrote in English, it's the, you hear the Irish. There's even a kind of relaxed slangy, uh, tone. And the dated slang places his generation in Irish, you know, her ditties, her this, her that. And, uh, in French, it's, it's, it's cold running water. And even when it's the same thing. Have you read your own works after they were translated? Oh, I certainly do, because I check all the proofs in French. In Paris, I give readings in French. 
from the translations, yes. Do you have one translator who does your work? No, uh, that's, uh, I, I had one, and then he decided to become a writer. And uh, then I had one who was thrust upon me I didn't like, then another one I didn't like. Now uh, we don't know, because this book, we don't know who's going to translate it. It's being translated, and we're discussing the thing. It's it's very tricky translation. I imagine yeah. so, because of the, the linguistic yes. layers that are yes. already present, then we yes. add still another. In fact, the only time I ever had trouble as an English-speaking person and writer in, in, in French culture was when my work began to be translated and I had to check the proofs. And there were my ideas, but in what syntax? I was completely lost and I had trouble with English. I had trouble with English for a very short time. And I had to ration uh, I, in the morning just listening to English news, the BBC, not listening to any French, not to get on a French track. But that didn't last. Having lived in Europe for so many years, I'm, I'm sure you've been back to North America from time to time. I come to Canada every year and occasionally to this. What is your perception that you're seeing North America in, in almost uh, snapshots, annual snapshots, which must give you a very different perspective from those of us who live here full time? I see mostly the, the change in the Americans who come, who come to Paris. The crowd in the 50s that, that, that were on the GI Bill, you know, and were very, well, they were close to me in age, so I, I understood them. Then, you know, there were those who came to get away from um, Reagan, and that was another crowd altogether. They drifted back. Americans go home. They always go home now. You get now uh, a lot of social climbers. That's completely new. I didn't know Americans in that sense. You come over, they want to know this person and that person, and, uh, you know, you know if, if if you know a painter, it has to be this one, and if you know, yeah. do they regard you as the Gertrude Stein of your generation? I hope not. The American expatriate writer, that is North American, living in France. No, they're so very on. nice. I get along with them, but but I'm often puzzled at what interests them. Now they they've changed to that extent. Well, one, one thing about Americans, they were never climbers. They, they just came over and wrote, and, you know, they very often lived among themselves. They they do form colonies more than, uh, than other people, but they, uh, but there is that change. I don't know whether to change in this country or what. So you don't have any, uh, any guess as theory as to why that's changed at all? No, I, I would think that was up to you. A number of writers see literature as some kind of political statement, and a number of writers say that literature has nothing to do with politics. I don't see how anything you write cannot be political. It is, it is implicitly political. And when you meet writers who say, I'm not interested in politics, this thing is remote from I'm not. I'm not talking about poets. I'm talking about prose writers. This thing is remote from me. Take it from me, the right wing. And they don't know it. Can you go Well, but just you, you discover it in conversation, talking to them. They say, oh, politics, horror, you know, I don't want anything to do with it. They're all a bunch of this and that. And then, you, you know, I write only for aesthetic reasons, and you talk to them. You realize that the, the aesthetic reasons are very conservative ones, and, and that's a political statement right away. So even when they're avoiding politics, they're saying something? Anything written is political. Except thank you for the lovely lunch. That can pass. <laughs> so Across the Bridge is a political collection of stories. But it's implicit. But in, 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 the ter in, the, in the lives they live, in the country, I'm, I'm very fussy about the background. And the, 
exactly exactly what's happening. There's no never never land for me, and uh, so it's simplicity in the background. So you are making statements, even as you talk about uh, marriage and troubled making statements. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I I guess what I'm 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 trying to pin you down, and you're you're not you're not pinnable, but <laughs> which is good. Um, at one point, you said you said in an interview. When when the question came up, you write about marriage and troubled relationships. Your response was, "What else is there?" To trouble than trouble, I don't know. Well, well, if I put the question, it's up to you to answer. It's not up to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> but when you say, "What else is there?" Well, I think I was. I might have been being flip. Okay, it's Be possible. I don't. I don't remember the, this exchange at all. Because certainly, if you're talking marriage and troubled relationships, that's politics. Is I guess an. Ex a, an element of that, but it's not. Well, the t the very time you live in is political, and when you, I don't think you could you can live a complete life exempt from what is going on around you, and, and uh, even un unconsciously reacting to it. I don't mean who who am I going to vote for? It's something completely completely out. When you said before that the aesthetic, the person interested in aesthetics, when you talk to them and no one would ever say that, but it's it, it, it's, it's implicit, implicit, yeah, yes. that that they actually are conservative. What do you think that means? I I don't know, but it's something I've noticed. It's just something something I've noticed. I'm an ex reporter, and I report what I notice. Be because it would <laughs> yeah. tend to imply that that the conservative is somehow perhaps ignoring or or boxing politics and look putting it in a back pocket. I really don't know, but it is something I have noticed. Especially when people are very disdainful say, well, moi la politique, jamais, quelle horreur, you know, how awful I don't want to. You get into a conversation you discover it's always someone very conservative. One other question then, because you do mention your background as a journalist, to what extent would you agree with the statement that all fiction is really a form of reporting? Uh, to me, yes. But other writers would tell you something completely different. To me, it's, it, it is reporting. It's reporting on people. It's reporting on the, what you see when you look out the window, except that you, you should know a little bit more, uh, if you're a writer, the, the, the probabilities of, of what, are, uh, what are happening. But there is a difference. As a journalist, you have no right to say what somebody was thinking. I absolutely disprove of that. But uh, in, in, in fiction, you have the right, and isn't it lovely? You can put yourself in someone else's place, but it's, it's reporting. I, 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 I think so, yes. You're continuing to write for The New Yorker? Well, I'm continuing to write. I don't write for The New Yorker. I'm not, I'm not on staff. There'll be a story out this month, if that's what you're fishing for. Okay. <laughs> you know, but the thing about, about reporting, I'll tell you something that was written about me. That is, it was in El País, you know, the, the, the Madrid paper. It was just this summer. And it said, she is the invisible woman of Canetti who went around Europe writing down invisibly, you know, writing down what we never thought was important. And when we read it, it was important. So that is reporting. Uh, I think that's a yeah. wonderful tribute. Oh, I, it's, it's, the, it's the only review I've ever kept. And it was just this summer. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I'm thrilled with it. I, to tell the truth, I don't know who Kennedy's Invisible Woman was. I never came across that in his books, Kennedy. 
Elias Canetti, Nobel Prize. He was a, a, a Jew from Bul. He was Jewish from Bulgaria, but he writes in German. I don't know who the, who the invisible woman was oh. in his books. Uh, I, I never came across that. There's a couple of things in the New Yorker that were autobiographical uh, about uh, Vienna and um, how uh, Brecht, he was that generation. He knew Hermann Brock. Uh, he he uh, rarely liked anybody. but And he, he wrote a, 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 a very rather charming book, actually, about uh, Kafka, uh, his attempts to be in love. <laughs> That's the only light thing he ever wrote. His novels are, are difficult to get through, I admit. You've been listening to an interview with the late Mavis Gallant, who died at the age of 91 in February 2014. New York Review Books Classics has published several volumes of her stories, most notably the collected stories, which feature 52 examples of her best work, and Paris stories curated by Michael Ondaatje. Across the Bridge is available in an ebook edition from Amazon. My co-host for the interview was Richard A. Lupoff. This interview was digitized, remastered, and edited in August 2020. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky Podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.